0: Hey guys, we wanted to take a moment and thank you for tuning into our church's podcast. This week's sermon is from our series Alpha and Omega. To learn more information about Sturkey Hills, you can find us at sturkey.church. Oh, and don't forget to hit subscribe to our podcast so that you can always stay up to date with our latest messages. We're so thankful for all that God has been doing in the life of our church and the part that you play in it. Thank you for listening and have a blessed day. Was that not some sweet worship today? Amen. Amen. Thank you, worship team. A sign of a good leader is when a leader's gone and his team picks up and rolls forward, and man, they just nailed it and blessed my heart, and I know he did yours, and I know the Spirit of God was with us in our worship today. Now, we're continuing in our series on Revelation, the bookend on the right, so you can open up your Bible to Revelation chapter 2, and I'll remind you of kind of how this thing unfolds. Just like the video showed, everybody thinks Revelation is about everything. There's the beast, and there's dragons, and there's uh, suffering, and wrath, and bowls, and and all this stuff. But the central theme of the whole book is the resurrected, glorified Jesus Christ. He is the theme of the whole entirety of the 66 books, but he is the theme of the book of Revelation. Now, Revelation, people want to dissect it. People want to get scared of it. They want to break it down into segments and sections, and you can do all of that, and it's fine. But the Holy Spirit of God, impressed upon John the Revelator, through an angel, even in chapter one, from God to Jesus to the angel to John, and then ultimately Jesus would begin to speak directly to John. But in chapter one, verse 19, there is a huge key to unlocking our understanding to the book of Revelation. He says in chapter one, verse 19, he says, I'm going to give you an outline for the whole book. He said, I want you to write the things which you've Seen. That's chapter 1. He saw the risen, glorified Jesus, and that's what he describes. He says, then I want you to to write the things which are. This will be chapters 2 and chapter 3, which is the age of the church from its inception until it's no longer here, but it's in heaven with Jesus. And so chapter 2 and chapter 3, that's where we live. That's where we hang out. It is the church age. But then he says, after these things which are, I want you to write the things which will be after this. This is the season that happens beginning in chapter 4 and lasts until chapter 19, which is the tribulation period. Now, God gives uh, uh, whatever that is, uh, 15 chapters approximately to his wrath, to his judgment upon this broken world. And so we are in chapter 2. We're in church number 3. Now, these were very real churches, I'll remind you, the very real churches in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. If you fly to Turkey today, you will land in Izmir, Turkey, probably, and hopefully. And when you land in Izmir, that would be Smyrna, okay? It's very real country. And these letters are written to be distributed by a postman uh, up the coast and then back around, and it makes a, a loop, seven churches. They were very real churches. So these this writing describes very real churches. Number two, it paints a picture of the, uh, of the church through the ages, how it digresses or moves further and further away from Jesus' intention at the inception of, of the church. And so in today what that means is most much of the world finds itself in the, what would be the Laodicean, the last church age, the lukewarm apathetic church. Now, every church does not fall into that category because all along the way there's church different churches of different personalities and commitments along the way. So any given church in the United States or around the world will line up with one of these seven churches in terms of their personality and their relationship with Jesus. Not only that, but it paints a picture of individuals in every church. So, in this church today, there are churches who have left their first love. That would be the church at Ephesus. They're they're doing the right things, but the wrong motivation. They've walked away from their first love. Number two, there's people in this church who would be Smyrnian uh, Christians, those who are suffering right now, and God commends you, and he's right in the heart of your suffering like we talked about last week. Today we're going to look at a church called Pergamum or Pergamus, and we're going to look at it through the lens like we have the other churches that Jesus is the great physician, and he's coming to do a physical exam Of his churches. So he's gone to Ephesus, gave him an exam. He's gone to Smyrna, today he's going to Pergamum. I want to begin reading in chapter 2, Revelation, verse 12. He says, Now to the angel of the church. We've talked about the angel. This is the messenger to the church. This many people believe it's the pastor to the church. At Pergamum, I want you to write, These are the words of him who has a sharp, double edged sword. those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now, this is Jesus speaking. And as he does to every church, he reaches back into the things which John saw, the image, the visual, when Jesus showed up, the resurrected Jesus, and he, he he takes part of that characteristic or description of himself, and he applies it to a particular church. Now, in this particular case, he reaches into one and he says, oh, I got that double-edged sword thing going for me. This is not something he wields in his hand. This is something protruding from his mouth. Okay. And so he says, I'm going to refer to you church at Pergamum with the double edged sword. And I want you to know why that is because, and what that is, the sword, the double edged sword is the word of God. The sword is the word of God. And so we, 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 we start to wonder, well, why did he choose the sword? Well, I believe it's easy as we read this chapter, as we read this letter to this church, here is a church that I will call the compromising church. This is the church that, man, first, they were in love with Jesus. They got it. Secondly, they moved a little further away, and they lost or left their first love, okay? In, lose, in, in, in walking away from their first love, They were suffering, which they were doing already, but now when they took their eyes off of Jesus, they they put their eyes on their self and their own suffering. So they started noticing, man, their suffering is hurting. And so in their hurt, in their suffering, which is what we do, we look for a way to have the suffering removed or softened. And so what did they do? They would compromise They would compromise their convictions. Here is a church that says, man, it is no fun being sold out to Jesus Christ in a lost world. It it is not fun. So what I'll do... I I, I like the Word, man. That saved me. I want to be a part of the Word, but I'm going to stand in the world, too. I'm going to ride this fence, and when I'm with the world, I'll just look like the world. And when I show up in the Word on Sunday morning or with a circle of Christian friends, I'm going to speak Christian ease, okay? And they want the best of both worlds, but you can't have that. You you will never be the Christian. We will never be the church that God wants us to be when we have a foot planted in both the Word and And the world. It doesn't work because God's word never, ever compromises. So, in in the court of law, when you testify, I don't want you to say it with me if you know it. They say, okay, I want you to repeat after me. You're getting ready to give your testimony. I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth. So help me God. Here's Jesus now who's speaking, and I believe he's saying this I swear to tell the truth the whole truth, I don't need any help, I am God, all right? And he's speaking to a church of compromise with the double-edged sword that cuts to the matter where there is no compromise, there is no variation, there is no change, there is no dilution, there is no watered down, it is just the cold, hard facts of truth, and it's found right here in this book. It is always truth, and it never changes. So, so when he says the sword... I want you to know the sword is the word. Tell your neighbor, the sword is the word of God. Now, I want you to be reminded about what the word of God is because we forget that. And let me just go ahead and, by the way, I am a preacher of the gospel. I'm a proclaimer of God's word, okay? Sometimes it's uncomfortable to preach. Sometimes, as somebody told me not long ago, it's uncomfortable to hear, okay? Okay? Jesus said he will build his church. Jesus called me to preach this book. And when it feels good and it makes us happy, warm, and fuzzy, praise Jesus for those. When it kind of cuts and hurts and stomps on our toes, praise Jesus for that because he's moving us to a better place than where we are currently. So I just want to tell you, sometimes when I introduce myself or somebody introduced me as their preacher, they'll say, this is our pastor, Pastor Joel. And they'll say, it happens all the time. Oh, like Joel Osteen? I'm like, how about the prophet of the Old Testament, Joel? How about not Joel Osteen? Okay. Okay. I mean, Joel Osteen, he, he'll make you happy. He'll, he, you, I'm, I don't have anything against him. He's a, he's a positive speaker. You know, he he makes you smile. Man, I'm going to hell, but I sure am happy. He's, I don't know, okay? Just praise Send me some money. Man, we could get on my jet and ride around the world. Praise Jesus. And, and I don't have anything against him. I really don't. But he does not preach this word very much. He will water in a, a word or two along the way, okay? So if you're going to com- compare me to a Joel, pick another one, please, okay? I mean, I like to smile, but I mean... My teeth are not as good as his, you know? So, so we live in a world where I'm supposed to preach this truth, all of it. And sometimes it's not comfortable. And this one's not comfortable, okay? It's not comfortable. It's not comfortable for me. It won't be comfortable for you because it's true. And I just want to tell you, listen, listen, I want everybody to listen. Whether you're born again, saved, or whether you're lost and going to hell when you die, I want you to hear this. No matter where you are on the scale of your relationship with God through Jesus Christ. If you don't have this as part of your regular diet of living, you will not ever be who it is Jesus has called you and created you and purposed and planned you to be. You will never be. Now listen to me. I'm unqualified. You say, well, I don't like to read. I don't read very well. I don't care if you have to put earbuds in and get a Bible app. I don't care if you have to buy a CD. You need to have this in your life. And you say, why is that so important? Because your life is full, chock full, slammed with the world's information, okay? Which is not always true. In fact, seldom is it true. You want to know truth? You run everything through the lens of this book, and you'll find truth. And so I want to encourage you to get in it. And listen, you say, well, I've tried reading the Bible. I want to tell you, you, you have nothing on your pastor. Your pastor cheated his way through middle school and high school. I just That's a confession. Jesus has forgiven me for that. I don't encourage that for anybody. Okay, I, I had a disorder. I, could, I couldn't learn. It was before they had drugs and, and and initials. You know, they had a they had a they had a paddle. They beat you into submission. You know, A B C D E F G. That was me. Had them. And so here's what happened. When I got 22 years old, the Holy Spirit of God pushed through all that, and and God planted Kendra and I and our young family in a a, a big church where the man of God would preach the Word of God unapologetically. I'd never heard it that way. And and I remember we moved from an apartment to a house and I found this little red Gideon Testament. And that little New Testament found its way into my pocket. And I was an engineer and a, a manager at a big manufacturing facility in Chattanooga, and I carried that thing all the time. And, and I would read it all the time. I'd stop at a traffic light, and that thing said, Let's read. I'd read it and people blow the horn. Yeah, I got it. I got this right here. I'm going. I don't know why I pulled that out. This didn't even exist. I had a red New Testament in about a six-font. OK, these didn't even exist. OK, and so uh, I would pull that thing out and I would hi- carry a yellow highlighter. And I, I've told this story probably before. I highlight everything. I mean, I'm reading about Jesus, the bird. man, that's good. Man, he, She rode in on a donkey. Wow, that's cool. You know, and I remember Kendra saying, why are you highlighting everything? Because it's all important. It's serious. OK, because it came to life. And I want to encourage you to say, well, I've tried it. It didn't come to life in me. You didn't try it long enough. You didn't ask the Holy Spirit of God to enlighten you and help you see what you're reading. Because when you do that, he will blow you up with his word. Because what is the sword? It is the word of God. It is an eternal truth. It cannot move. It cannot waver in a world of movement, in a world of compromise. God's word stands true. Now, listen, here's what it does. This is what it does. Hebrews 4.12 says, the word of God is living and active and sharper than a double-edged sword. even to the point of dividing soul from spirit and joints from marrow it is able to judge the desires and the thoughts of the heart that's why when you hear a message preached from god's word that's why when you read god's word it sometimes hurts and you're like man that, that just doesn't feel real real warm and fuzzy for me it's because it it actually cuts down to the thoughts and the motivations of what you are thinking that's what god's word does number two it's not just what is God's Word. There's a who to God's Word. I want you to understand that, that there's more to this than just words on a page. I, uh, John, the, the revelator, when he wrote the, his gospel, he, 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 he helps us understand that. When somebody is, comes to me and they says, I'm going to start reading my Bible, where do you recommend? I go to Leviticus. That would be a good place to get you fired up. No, I don't. It's a lie. Okay? Go to John. You go to John because John was madly, passionately in love with Jesus Christ. And you read his book, he'll help you understand Jesus, how you should love him, and what his word means. Listen, to what he says in John chapter one, beginning in verse one. John says, I'm gonna start this thing off. I gotta go where, what, what, what matters most. He says in verse one, In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was fully. God, and the word was with God in the beginning. You say, so what? What does that have to do with Jesus? Okay, keep reading. Look down at verse 14. Now the word, which is an, uh, uh, an, an object, ink on a page, something mysteriously happens in John's vocabulary. He says, the word now, a thing, became flesh, and it took up residence among us. And we saw now, it goes from this, it gets a personal pronoun. Now the word, he says, we saw his glory, the glory of the one and only full of grace and truth who came from the Father. Let's break it down and be simple. The Bible is Jesus on paper. Jesus is flesh from scripture. Jesus is the flesh manifestation of ink on paper. Ink on paper is the book version of Jesus in the flesh. So the more you read this, the more you're uh, taking Jesus into your life as part of your daily life, and it will change, his word changes you. It doesn't matter where you are in your pilgrimage, this book will change you. Amen? Amen, brother Joel. Now, so that's who the word is. Now let's go on. What does the word do for us? Well, Ephesians 6:17 says take up the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit which is the word of God. It is our source. It is our initiation. It is by the gospel the power of God unto salvation that those believe, the for those who believe. This is our this is where we get our salvation from because this is Jesus. All right? Not only that, but it is our sword of the spirit. It is what we do battle with. You can live this world all day long and close this book and never have it in your life, and you will not make right decisions very often. But you can open this book and begin to determine God's counsel about the world you live in, and you will begin to make right judgments. You see, the sword cuts and pierces with potency and power, exposes and judges the innermost thoughts of every man and woman, boy and girl. That's what it does. But I want you to know what it doesn't do. It never asks for your opinion. It it never asks for you to weigh in on how it affects your culture. It never asks you if this is comfortable truth for you in the world you live in and the way and in your dispositions in life. It uh, It does not come to you and say, do you agree? I mean, this is God's thoughts. Do you agree? It never asks that, okay? Because it's truth with or without you, okay? Now, what we've got to understand is when the sword comes into her life, it begins to do an investigation and it always reveals exactly where you are. Okay? I'm gonna ask for transparency. Have you ever read a scripture? Excuse me, have you ever had a proclivity or personal preference that was just hard in your life? That you, you know, like I just don't, this is who I am, okay? And God's word is saying something a little different. So who I am is going to trump what God's word says a little bit. Have you ever found yourself at that crossroad where the, where the word of God did not really align itself with who you are and how you wanted to process? Okay. If you haven't, you've never exposed yourself to God's word because it always does that. Because Why? Because it pierces and cuts. It goes deep into our being and explains and defines who we are. And so what happens is we get to a crossroads where we have to say okay I'm going to believe me or I'm going to believe the word okay okay what are some things in our world today that really 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 need some real hard-cold fact truth some things in our world that just need the truth revealed on them and you wonder what the truth is well I made a list of just a few how about abortion the value of human life oh God weighs in on that. How about alcohol and legalized marijuana use? Oh, God weighs in on that. How about legalized gambling in casinos? God weighs in on that. How about marriage and divorce? God weighs in. How about homosexuality and transgenderism? God weighs in. How about sexual identity and sexual experience outside of marriage? God weighs in. How about family roles and responsibilities for men, women, boys, and girls? God weighs in. How about parenting? How about money and wealth? How about the inerrancy of the scripture itself? God weighs in on all of that, and the world has all of this information that, trust me, as you're going to see in a minute, Jesus says to Pergamum, I know where you live, where Satan sets up his throne. And Pastor Joel says to this church and to you as an individual, I know where you live because I live here too. And in this place where we live, you and I are bombarded and slammed with information alternative to this word, okay? And we get to a place where we get to choose, am I going to live by the word of God Or am I going to live by the world and its word? Or am I going to stand in the middle and compromise my life and my convictions and live with part of me in the world and part of me in the word? Well, Jesus addresses a church who did just that. It's called the church at Pergamum. And he says, I know where you live where Satan has his throne. So right now you may be thinking, yeah, but you don't know. I go to UT. (laughs) right here. I go to UT. You don't know where I go to school. Okay. You may say, you know, I'm in middle school, and, you know, everybody in middle school is like going to hell, and you don't, you don't, you don't know what that's like, okay? okay. Or, you, or you may say, I'm a teacher at a county high school. You don't know where I work. You know, it don't matter. It, uh, Jesus knows. See, Jesus knows where you live. Jesus know he, he, takes, he takes account of your beating heart. He takes inventory of the breath you breathe. He knows when a hair falls off your head and records that. He knows everything about you. He is madly, passionately, intimately in love with you. The pinnacle of all of his creation is you. He died for you. And so he knows where you live. And so just like he says to this church, I know where you are. So you say, okay, but they, they were in Pergamum, you know. Asia Minor, big deal. Okay, listen to where they were. Listen to where they had to live their life. Pergamum, the estimated population at this time, AD 95, was about 250,000 people. It was a strong, financially secure, wealthy, independent city. Many of the people who lived in the city were Jews. They were known for science. They were known for knowledge. It was cultured and sophisticated they had this thing going on. Um, Pergamum was also known for to be the center of arts. They had a theater that seated ten thousand people, and the ruins are still there. And they said it was so intricately engineered that ten thousand people could be sitting in the arena. Two people could stand on the stage, and you could whisper one to the other, and everybody would hear it. That's how technologically, scientifically, cultured, and advanced they were. They, uh, they created papyrus, which is paper out of animal skins. They created that. That's, that's, that's what, they were, were, what their wealth came from. In their city, they had the second largest library in the world, 200,000 books all of them obviously handwritten because they hadn't, didn't have printing presses yet. 200,000 handwritten scrolls in their city library. Ultimately, Antony would give it to Cleopatra and they would be transferred to Egypt. Real stuff. This is where Jesus says, I know, Pergamum, where you live. All right. Not only that, religiously. Man, it was the happening place religiously. They also had a mound where they put all of these uh, uh, ornate uh, temples to the host of other lowercase g gods of the world. They had a temple there to Aphrodite. They had a temple there for Apollos. They had a temple there for Diana. They had a temple for Caesar Augustus. They had a temple there for Zeus. But they had another temple, it was the medical temple. You see, Pergamum was also known to be the medical center of the the world. If you needed healing, you would come to Pergamum for healing. And if you came to Pergamum for healing, you would make an appointment at the temple of Asclepius. Anybody ever heard of Asclepius? That's a mouthful, okay? Asclepius is the god, lowercase g, of healing. Now, if that was where we went for healing today, let me just go ahead and confess, your pastor, if he was sick, He would just go ahead and die. Now, here's why. If you needed healing, you would go to the temple of Aesculapius, and you would descend down under the temple through a tunnel. Once you got into the tunnel, you would would be soothed or intoxicated by a sedative to get your spirit right for healing. Secondly, then, you would receive a body massage. Thirdly, you would be entertained by a small drama about healing. And then if you were still not healed, you went on down below the temple into, the, into the, uh, the basement of the temple. And in the basement of the temple were a host of non-poisonous snakes. And if you needed healing, this would represent Escalapius coming to touch your body. So you would disrobe and take all your clothes off, lay in the basement of the temple of Escalapius in hope that you would be slithered for your healing. That's why I say your pastor is dying. Okay? And if they forced me to go in there, they would have a basement full of dead snakes. Okay? Because the fight would be on. Now you say, well, maybe where I live isn't quite as bad as I thought. No, it's not. Not only that, this church would find itself persecuted, persecuted, just like Smyrna. I mean, getting beat down by Rome, trying to be conquered. And yet they remained true to his name. That's what Jesus says. He says, you've remained true, and you did not renounce your faith. I want to remind you not only how important the word is, but how important the name Jesus is, okay? I said it a few weeks ago, man. There's power in the name of Jesus. The enemy flees at the name alone of Jesus. And so let's just practice it. I want everybody to say Jesus at the count of three. One, two, three. I'll say it again. One, two, three. You ought to incorporate that in your life. Just like last week, we talked about saying, I am a Christian. You should incorporate that in your daily living. You should say, Jesus, just not, not, not in a profane way, but in a positive way, just calling out his name. Because it changes the world that you live in. And, and, and so they understood there's power in the name of Jesus. They understood that there's salvation in the name of Jesus. Acts 4.12 says, neither is there salvation in any other name. For there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. They understood that prayer changes, prayers are changed and answered when called upon in the name of Jesus. John 6, 24, hitherto have you asked nothing in my name, ask and you shall receive that your joy may be full. And so they knew that they didn't need to look any further than the name of Jesus. Now listen to me, in this world we live in, you can say God all you want to, it gets no pushback. You can say God's name, nobody cares. There's something, though, about saying Jesus or Jesus Christ that causes the enemy to indwell people to begin to push back because you're calling out the name who changes things. Why is that? You don't believe it's true? Watch the ESPYs, watch the Grammys, watch any other awards show you want, and they will call on the name of God. i just like to thank God. And you just, you just listen to their song, and you're like, what, you know? Or you just watch their life and you're like on display and you're like, what is that? See, you can call on God, lowercase g God or large g God, the real one or a fake one, okay? And nobody cares because nobody knows who you're talking about. You could be talking about Zeus. You could be talking about any other God you want to. You could worship the moon. You could be, when you say God, you'd be talking about the moon God, okay? Whoever you want to. But something about Jesus' name, people push back. You want a good example? Merry Christmas. No, we don't say, we're not allowed to say Merry Christmas anymore. What do we say? Happy holidays. happy holidays. Let me just go ahead and tell you, church, if you ain't got Jesus, it ain't happy. Okay? Holiday without Jesus is not happy. Holiday without Jesus is hell bound. Okay? That's the truth. Jesus taught more about hell than he did in heaven. You take Jesus out of the equation of life, you are hell bound and you have no hope. But because of the name Jesus, everything changes. So, so you say, well, I don't celebrate Christmas because that's a pagan holiday. You can bring that one up to, I don't celebrate Easter. That's a pagan holiday. You know where that came from? You know where that came from? It's true. What you just, if you believe that, it's true. It came from this season of the church age. It came in this location in Pergamum. This is when it happened You say, well, do you celebrate Christmas, Brother Joel? Yes, I do, man. I love me some Christmas. You celebrate Easter? Yes, I do. Jesus resurrected. I celebrate Easter. Ha! If you don't want a present from me, fine. I won't get you one. Okay? Well, why do I celebrate Christmas? Because it is the birth of God on this planet. It is the virgin conception, delivery in a stable of God incarnate. Jesus, and I celebrate that at Christmas time. Okay? Do I celebrate Easter? Yes, I do. Yes, I do, because it represents the resurrected Jesus Christ. I celebrate Christmas at Thanksgiving. I celebrate Christmas and Easter every day of my life. He came, He died, He rose from the dead. I celebrate that with my life every day. All right? So I'm not afraid of that. not bashful, ashamed of that. I celebrate. I celebrate all the time. And you should too because there's something about that name. Now listen in Colossians 1. He says, for all things in it. This is Jesus. In case you didn't know, in case you didn't before get the memo, this is Jesus. It says, for all things in heaven and on earth were created in him. Jesus all things whether visible or invisible thrones dominions principalities powers all things were created through him Jesus and they were created for him Jesus verse 17 he Jesus himself is before all things and all things are held together by him Jesus he Jesus is also the head of the body the church as well as the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself may become first in all things. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in the Son, Jesus, and through Jesus reconcile all things to himself by making peace through the blood of his cross, through him, whether things on earth or things in heaven. That's who Jesus is. I want you to know that. His word is is Jesus Jesus is the key to everything. Start incorporating his name in your life and watch your life change. Start sharing his name. There, you didn't need that. Start sharing his name and watch God change lives of those around you. Run from the name of Jesus. Be bashful about the name of Jesus. Be ashamed of the name of Jesus. And Jesus said, I'll be ashamed of you before the Father. So we need to incorporate that into our life to experience the fullness and the power that we have. Now, Jesus refers to somebody else here. He says, also, you were right there when Antipas was martyred. Now This was the pastor at the church of Pergamum. We talked about Polycarp was burned at the stake, and he wouldn't die, so they had to spear him. Now, Antipas was the pastor of Pergamum. So they're trying to exterminate the church, and they can't, okay? So they begin to take the leaders and try to martyr them in hopes that it will diffuse what's going on in the life of the church. So they had this large, hollow brass bull. And inside this bull, they had a harness. And they would take somebody that they were trying to torture, like Antipas, and they would put him inside the hollow bull. And they would strap his head inside the head of that hollow bull. And then they would ignite a fire underneath the brass bull. And as this furnace of a bull began to heat up, he would begin, the person inside would begin to scream in anguish. And when he screamed, he would scream out the nostrils and out the mouth of this bull. And it was like the bull was coming alive. That's what they did. That's how they treated people who were sold out for Jesus Christ. And let me just tell you, you don't live in that world. But you don't understand my friends. My friends are going to make fun of me if I'm sold out to Jesus. You don't need them friends. You need to share Jesus with those friends and make those friends better friends and real friends. Well, you don't understand. At my work, I won't get that, I won't get that promotion if I don't act like they do. You don't need that promotion. You need Jesus. Okay? Well, you don't understand. I don't have to understand anything. Jesus understands it all. And he says to you, just like he said to per- Pergamum, I know where you live where Satan has made his throne. Now, he, he says, some among you hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin, so that they ate food sacrificed to idols, committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. <clears throat> now, what does that even mean? Well, if you go back in the Old Testament, you will find a prophet uh, whose name was Balaam. And, and they wanted Balaam to... He was a a prophet who they wanted wanted to pay him to cast a curse on the nation of Israel. And so Balak was the king, and so Balaam said, I can't do that. He said, because God will only let me curse who he curses, and I can only bless who he blesses. I'm just the instrument. And so he says, I I, kind of want the best of both worlds, because he was a prophet for profit. He was going to get paid, and he said, I, I, I kind of want the best of both worlds, so I'm going to tell you how you can hurt this, this, the nation of Israel. He says, what you're going to do is you're going to entice them with foreign women, and they will be, begin to intermarry, and when they intermarry with foreign women, they will introduce their gods to the nation of Israel so that they will compromise their faith, and they will, they will trust in God and the lowercase g gods of the foreign women. That's what he's talking about. And then you got the Nicolaitans, Nicholas, who was a deacon. He began to teach this liberalized view of Scripture, that that you can live like you want to live because you're under grace. You know, we we, we need to sin more so grace can abound. The more we sin, the more we get more grace, so let's just sin all the time. That's the kind of philosophy or or, uh, doctrine that he taught. So what about the world we live in? Well, we live in that same deluded world. We live in that same world that, man, that just says, you can have the best of both worlds. You can be a Christian and live like the world, and it's all going to be good. It's not good because this is the, the life of the compromised church. Now, so, so let's look culturally. Now, Emperor Constantine was the, was the ruler of Rome, and he was trying to extinguish the church. He was torturing it. He was martyring their leaders. He was trying to stomp it out, but he couldn't. In fact, the harder he stomped, and the more he persecuted and killed, the more it grew. I mean, it's like the more you hurt them, the the faster they grow. And so, have you ever heard the expression, if you can't beat them, join them? That's where it was coined. Constantine claims to have had a vision from heaven, where in the clouds of heaven, the word Christ appeared. And he says, okay, I get it now. So he told the nation, he told his armies, he says, I am a Christian, and you all are going to be Christians too. And he baptized all of his soldiers. Okay, and said, we're all Christians now. And they went back to Rome, and they said, we're all going to be Christians. This is going to be our, our new religion. This is going to be the religion of the state. But the problem is he wanted the best of both worlds. And so he compromised the church. He says, listen, church, we're, we're with you on this thing, but we're going to have to do it a little bit different okay? First, we're going to take up any scripture that, that you have, and we're going to put it in the hands of people who can actually read the scripture, okay? And, and, and we have all these temples that are already built to these foreign gods, these pagan temples, so we're just going to make them churches, and we'll let you meet in these pagan temples. And not only that, but we've already got this hierarchy, this structure of leadership, these uh, pagan priests, and they're intelligent people. We will make them pastors. And so, What they did is they married or merged Rome and the church, and hence would come the Roman Catholic Church, and it would change the church as as it was designed, and it would change the church as much as the church is today because of the Reformation. And that's what it looks like when you start compromising this book. And so what does it mean to, uh, to compromise? Well, you remember that list of things that I said were important and we had answers in here at the beginning of the message? What does that look like? When we start weighing in the ideas and philosophies of the world to be equal to the ideas and truth of God's Word, what does that look like? Well, let me go back to that list because I, I got to thinking about some of these things. Abortion. What do we do with abortion? When we kind of lay this down or we merge this with the world's ideas, the value of human life, we begin to argue among ourselves about abortion in the case of incest and rape and the health of the mother. all oh, those are good arguments. But it says nothing to the millions and millions of babies who are exterminated innocently out of the convenience of somebody who made a wrong choice. And Am, am, am I, for, am I uh, pro-choice? Yes, I am. You let every baby get here and let them choose if they would prefer to live or die. Don't you choose life for someone else. But see, when we walk away from the truth of God's word and the value of human life at conception and we begin to n- d- compromise with the ways of the world, we find ourselves in this fog of what truth is. Just go to this book and find out what life is all about and when it begins. What about, what about alcohol and legalized marijuana use? Everybody wants to argue that one. Well, we got medicinal purposes, you know. My dad went to a doctor. His heart doctor told him if he'd drink a beer a week or a beer a day or whatever it is, his heart would be better. Well, I could take you to 10 more doctors that would say the risk of drinking alcohol is not good for your dad, okay? What about marijuana? That's, oh, you said marijuana. Who would have thought that we would legalize marijuana for um, recreational purposes, and that's what some states are doing, and it'll be here before you long, before long. Why? Because we say, "Oh, but for medicinal purposes, it's good for cataracts, or it's good if you if you uh, uh have um, um what's the? Autism or whatever. Marijuana helps some of those things. And so we argue on those points. Meanwhile, families are broken. People are killed. Prisons are full because they compromised and said, it's okay, I can handle this. And let me just go ahead and tell you, your pastor takes a total abstinence approach to alcohol. And I encourage the whole church to run from that stuff. And if you've never been in a circle where it costs you everything, One day you'll experience it and you'll regret your decisions. The whole Kavanaugh thing, I told my son in law, I said, listen, if he didn't drink when he was a kid, he wouldn't be having this conversation today. So I just want to encourage you don't drink. If you do, it's between you and Jesus. But don't come and argue about why it's good. If the whole world is advertising, man, this is good, man, this is what we need to be doing. If nothing else, if you have no Bible, if you have no statistics, when the world says this is good, beware. Right. Beware. Okay, I'll keep moving before y'all fire me. All right, gambling and casinos. I was listening to a debate between uh, two of our uh, uh, governors it was a debate between the governors, men running for the governor. And they talked about gambling, We're talking about legalizing gambling, you know, in, in, in Tennessee. Because the surrounding, and here's how we debate it. Well, the surrounding states have it, and if they're going to buy lottery t- I mean, if they're going to buy, if they're going to go to casino, they're going to go to one of the surrounding states anyway. What kind of argument is that? You know, if you're a murderer, and we make murdering illegal in Tennessee, but it's legal in Alabama, okay, well, they're going to murder people in Alabama, so we might as well just let them murder people here, too. I mean, come on, okay? That's the world we live in. What kind of argument is that? It has no grounds, okay? And they talk about, oh, it'll be good for our highways. My highways are fine. Get some new shocks, okay? If, it's so, if your car's so rough, get you a helmet. Our highways are fine, okay? Look what it would do for our schools. Look what it would do for our schools. New textbooks and new equipment in the schools. Meanwhile, they say nothing of organized crime, They say nothing of gambling addictions. They say nothing of the vice that follows something like gambling. And and, and I'm I'm telling you the truth. And if you've never met somebody who goes to Gamblers Anonymous, then you don't understand. But when you are a Sunday school teacher and a 28-year-old man with two children comes to you and says, I got a problem. And I says, what is it? I'm thinking it's pornography. That's a big one. He says, no. He said, I'm addicted to gambling. I said, huh? He said, yeah. I said, like, how bad? He said, well, I'm in, I'm in with a loan shark for $8,000. O- o- what would you gamble on? Football boards. Does your wife know this? No, she doesn't know I play football boards. We, until, until you experience that, you don't get it. So, so they don't talk about that. Talk, oh, okay, what about marriage and divorce? We begin to redefine marriage. We begin to say, okay, men with men, that's a marriage. Women with women, that's a marriage. Men with somebody who used to be a woman, now they're a man, eh, don't know what they are. It's a, it's a shim, I don't know. Um, the, okay, that's okay. That's okay too. We'll give you everybody, yeah, that's good. No, no. God's word defined marriage in Genesis right at, right at the very beginning, and he never changed it. And when they asked Jesus about marriage, he didn't redefine it. He went back to Genesis and ultimately said, marriage is this, one man, one woman, one God, one life. So what do we do? We want to say, oh, well, no, it's okay. You're being intolerant. You know, no, I'm not. I'm being truthful, Okay. You say, well, you don't understand. I've got a brother, and he's, he's, he's an open homosexual, okay? And honestly, I've been with him all my life, and I think he was born that way. Let me just go ahead and tell you. Sure, he may have been born that way. If you go down here under the bridge with me and Oscar, there's a whole lot of people down there who were born addicted to drugs. There's men and women down there who were born addicted to alcohol. There's people everywhere. You and I were born sinful, with a sin nature. But because we're born with a sin nature does not mean we embrace our sinful condition and stand and make a platform of why it's okay to be sinful. We say, Jesus, you died on a cross to make me someone, a brand new creature. So I want you to change my proclivity. I don't want to be an alcohol, and with your help, I'll push through it and come out on the other side victorious. I don't want to be a homosexual because I know you don't embrace homosexuality. So I want you to help me push through and become what you want me to be. That's but we begin to redefine we begin to embrace all of these ideas sexual immorality outside of marriage man we just whatever anything goes friends with benefits and it's reaching younger and younger and younger what used to what used to hit people when they were 18 now are hitting people when they're 10 that's the world we live in that's the world we live in. and we want to. oh yeah It's okay. No, it's not. This tells us what is okay. Family roles and responsibilities. We live in a culture where men have washed their hands because women have championed the cause, and men say, okay, fine, you take it. In fact, I'll just let you take the whole thing, and then they leave. And they don't support the children. They don't support the wife. They don't support the family. They walk away. Why? Because they compromised. Instead of looking in the Bible and saying, what's a man supposed to be? What's a woman supposed to be? How are children supposed to act? We redefine and rewrite the script. Money and wealth. We, 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 we Instead of realizing everything we have is a gift from God, we begin to hoard it, and we get addicted to accumulation and material greed, and all the while, God gets left out of the equation. And then lastly, Scripture inerrancy. We begin to say, well, God's word, I don't believe it's all accurate and true. Let me just go ahead and tell you, your pastor believes in what's called the infallible, inerrant, eternal word of God. Your pastor believes that the Holy Spirit, who is God, is certainly capable of whispering a truth message to his people. And he'll use all kinds of men in all kinds of ages in all kinds of cultures to speak that truth. And I will not stand up here and tell you that there's not scripture in there that I don't really understand how it aligns with other scripture. There are places where it gets very, very difficult. But I want to tell you this: if I or if you begin to say, "Well, this part right here, I don't think it's accurate," okay? Well, then what about John three sixteen? Then let's just throw that one out too. He didn't die for everybody, okay? What, where do we stop? So I just want to encourage you as a believer, get in God's word, just accept it and believe it and sink your life into it. And when somebody says, well, I just don't believe it all, you just ask them, in which parts do you believe? And how did you come up with the idea that that's a good part to believe? That's a keeper, okay? What they've done, they say, oh, I've, got the, I've, got, I've, got, I've been enlightened. I know which parts we're supposed to keep. You run from those people spiritually. So he says, now, church, I got a solution for you. That's who you are. Pergamum. He says, but I got a solution. Repent, therefore. Repent. Metaneo is the Greek word. It means to change your mind. He says, simply, you are, you, you've got off track. You've messed this thing up. You've compromised your convictions. And he said, just repent. Just simply just say, okay, you're right. I'm wrong as usual um i'm sorry i'm turning i'm wa- i'm turning 180 degrees not like the football coach I, I heard that day they said coach you know what do you attribute your su- success to you know and he's well i got over here and they lost losing record for the last eight years and we turned that thing around 360 degrees and now we're winning no you're not and that's what a lot of people want to do oh repent oh oh uh, yeah yeah and then we just keep going like we were that's not repent <laughs> that's busy, okay Repent is I'm walking away from God and his ways and his word, and I repent 180 degrees, metaneo, and I turn back to God and say, whoa, you're right, my bad. Will you receive me again? He'll forgive you, he'll empower you, and he'll let you walk in new shoes. That's the prescription. And then he says, if you do, he says, I'm going to give you manna, and I'm going to give you a a crown. I'm going to give you provision, and I'm going to give you victory. So here's what I close with. We have become a people who have exchanged the amazing nature of the real McCoy for a cheap imitation at whatever cost. Several years ago, we we raised two beautiful little girls, and they're beautiful big girls now, and uh, we went to New York City, and our girls wanted Louis Vuitton bags. We ain't Louis Vuitton people, okay? Louis Vuitton is money people, okay? And we knew you go to New York City, you go down Chinatown, man, you can get some knockoffs. You can get something that looks like the real McCoy, but it's not really the real McCoy. And so we we went to New York City, went down Chinatown, and we're walking down the street. It's sketchy if you're not from there. It's sketchy, man. And you go up and you say, "I'm I'm trying to find some, trying to act civilized. I'm a hillbilly." Okay, trying to find some Louis Vuitton purses. Oh, you want Louis Vuitton? Oh, you want Louis Vuitton? Louis Vuitton? Yeah, my girl's needs Louis Vuitton. You got my Louis Vuitton. Okay, so here I'm, now, now I'm following this little Oriental man into the parts of the world unknown. Okay, we walk through a door behind a tent, down a hall, through a room, out the back side of the room, now we're in another room, and I brought my family with me. Now I've exposed my whole family to murder. Robbery and nobody would even know where we went. No record of our existence. Okay? Why? Louis Vuitton. So we get in there and it was the Louis Vuitton Mecca. Okay? I'm talking about a whole room, man. It's, it's, it's floor to ceiling, wall to wall, Louis Vuitton. And my girls, you know, they're just slobbering. Oh, yeah, that's not. You know, so, you know, I, I'm sitting, the whole time I'm feeling exposed. I feel, the whole time I'm thinking, if Jesus comes back today, I'm not getting raptured, I'm going to hell. Okay? <laughs> Because we're buying illegal contraband <laughs> knockoffs. Now, here's the thing we, we bought. <laughs> we bought. And in about two months, Louis Vuitton started peeling off the side of the bag. A little pot metal bracket on the side snapped in two. Now you're carrying it by the end of a strap, you know. And the whole time, it dawned on me I, I was willing to risk the thing that I love the most for a cheap imitation. Now dads, I want to tell you, you've been given a responsibility for your children and your wife and your family. And so often, dads, you will risk your whole family's eternal destiny at the cost of a cheap imitation of glory. Maybe it's athletically. Maybe it's academically. Maybe it's materialistically. You name it. I just want to tell you, do not expose the most valuable thing in your, in your world to a cheap imitation. And mothers, I want to encourage you. You got boys and girls and a whole bunch of y'all have little babies. Do not teach your babies to follow or pursue a cheap imitation. That can ultimately cost everything. When there is the God of the universe who has given himself through Jesus, his son, and he says, I got everything, the whole world in my hands, and I will give it to you, a free gift in exchange for your broken world. And when we think of it in that light, doesn't it seem kind of goofy how we do things? When God is saying, I got it all, and I'll give it to you. Do you want it? I want you to bow your heads. Maybe you're here today and you've never received Christ and I just want to tell you, he loves you right where you are. You have no idea how much he's madly in love with you. He created you with a purpose and a plan and a future that includes a destiny in heaven if you will receive it. And you say, well, I'm here, and I've played religion, and I've played this game and that game, and I've pursued the cheap imitation, but I am not a Christian. I am not a believer. Jesus is not in my life. What do I do at this point? You respond to the Holy Spirit's call on your life. You simply admit who you are as a sinner. You say, God, I I am a sinner. I know that. And you place your faith, your belief in Jesus Christ who has done everything for you. You don't have to work for it. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to be better at this or that or do this or that. You simply say, God, I'm a sinner and I believe Jesus died for my sin. I want Jesus to come into my life right now and save my soul. I want your Holy Spirit to seal me and empower me to live for you from this day forward. I thank you that you would be such a good God That you would choose to love someone so unlovable as me. Thank you for saving somebody like me. Use me for your kingdom. If you just prayed that prayer, I'm going to be standing up here on the side. I want you to come and tell me about your prayer. I just want to encourage you in that. I want to pray for you. And maybe you're here today and you've lived a life of compromise. You've given your life to Christ. But you just live in this compromised halfway world, one foot in the world, one foot in the word and you're miserable there's many of you today walking in those shoes and I want to tell you as a pastor not because I'm better than you I want to tell you I've walked in those shoes and it is no fun to live in that compromised world of Christianity but when you get out of the box as a Christian and live sold out for him he will set your soul on fire and change everything let's stand this altar is open if you want to come